You're listening to Thought and Leaders. This is London Court. And welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful and magnificent exemplary planet of ours to find the most insightful leaders out there from all walks of life. And this week is absolutely no exception because this week I'm privileged to tell you the truth to be speaking to George, George Colreiser. Is that Did I get that right, George? It's actually Colreiser, but 50-50. 50 <laughs> is not bad. <laughs> okay, so George, tell us a little bit about who you are for some person who's living in a cave that may not have heard of you. In a very short form, I'm a professor at IMD in Lausanne of Leadership and Organizational Behavior, having come through the arena of mediation, hostage negotiation, clinical psychologist practicing for many years before moving into the area of leadership development. So I am working with people around the world, helping executives become more effective leaders. Now, I came across you because of a amazing article that you co-authored in uh, McKinsey. Is that right? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about that article. In this journey of understanding why people take hostages, how to resolve hostages, how to understand leadership, we need to know about loss, failure, disappointment, the negative part of life. And so these are easily classified as griefs. So this article is about hidden griefs, and they exist in an organization because of all kinds of losses, not just life, but losses that are connected to failures, changes, etc. So this is an article about that impact on individuals within an organization. And with the virus affecting the whole world, the whole world is in that sense grieving, and it depends how you deal with that grief. And the ultimate outcome is to say there is no grief too big that you can't overcome. George, if you were to define what the word grief means, what is it? It means letting go. It means being able to deal with the emotions of what happens when you don't get what you want. It can be a loss in identity. It can be a loss in expectation. It can be a death. It can be any loss, personal or professional, hits you and that is affecting your emotions. It may show up as anger, Mm. may show up as fear, but we have to go through that process that is basically called grief and then come out on the other side with a renewed force to come back to the joy of life or the joy of work. Now, throughout this awful global pandemic, that little word grief, George, it really has played a huge part in 
basically all our lives around the planet. Just to say that sentence, George, is just a bit odd, isn't it? It's played a huge part in all our lives around the planet. Yeah, look at the result, Jonathan. People who are angry, people who are depressed, people who feel worry or fear, people who ignore it, denial of the seriousness of the virus. Just the fact of having to wear a mask can provoke a grief reaction. Just the fact you can't uh, go out and eat in a restaurant, Mm. visit your friends, see your grandkids, see your, your sisters and brothers, and so many losses. As an eminent, world-respected leader yourself and, of course, teacher, do you think there's going to be a new psychological term specifically related to this loss? I mean, I've made up a term called COVID loss, but whatever it might be called, do you think that looking back when this is all over, there will be this COVID loss theory? The impact is going to be lasting. There's a whole generations who are affected by this. Just think of the young adults who are limited in their social activities to meet friends, establish relationships with girls and boys, and be able to live life as a normal teenager or young adult. That is a year out of their life. Talk about what happens that they can't go to school, that their grandparents die and they can't say goodbye to them. This is trauma for many people, and it will be lasting I was interviewing recently a child psychologist. We have a mental health facility in the United Kingdom called the Morsley Hospital, and they have seen a major increase in teenagers with eating disorders and self-harm, and they put it all down to, well, as I said, we'll just call it at this point, COVID loss. That's a good term. And what we have to remember is we are social beings. We, Our brain is wired for social activity. So the rates of suicide are extremely high. And they've gone up dramatically, as well as the psychosomatic illnesses and other manifestations that come with loneliness, isolation, not being able to engage in normal social activities. The the thing about grief, a lot of it has got to do with the way that humans cope with it, rituals. And, of course, these rituals have been taken away. How important is ritual to coping with grief? It's essential. The idea of what we do at a funeral, what we do in tribal activities, family activities, society activities, after a loss, not just death, but any kind of failure, being able to go through that. And there's been a very, very destructive process of making grief pathological. Grief is as normal as breathing. Families, tribes are all part of going through grief. Grief is normal. And so as we see this pandemic, there are people who are able to thrive and come out better people because they use it for learning. They use it in some way to understand themselves and the world. And like someone who goes through Auschwitz, Edith Edgar, for example, 92 years old, she says, one of my greatest experiences in life was in looking back at my years as a teenager in Auschwitz and coming out, realizing that was the most important event that made me be able to appreciate life. I would never wish it on myself or anybody again, but I'm grateful that I learned from it. So the key to any grief is how do we go through it, come back and learn from it, 
find meaning and purpose in it, and go on to the joy of life. I understand that Edith has a connection to Viktor Frankl, the author of the awe-inspiring Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most important books that I have ever read. Oh, he, he was a mentor to her. He, she knew him personally, and they had many interactions, conversations. So he was a secure base for her and helped inspire her. What kind of approach did he take towards grief? It was being able to make a choice to learn from it, be able to find something that inspires you in the depths of hell. And it was hell for them. So just the idea of watching a blade of grass, he describes this in his book, Mm. urinating on that piece of grass while the uh, Gestapo was watching, gave him a sense of power and empowerment and was something that made him appreciate life. Mm. So it can be simple or something major that helps keep hope alive. The worst is when you get into that depth of grief and you lose hope. Mm. No matter what the loss is, having hope is such important part of the whole process. He looked forward to seeing his wife. Now, she was already dead. She had already died in the ovens. But then when he got out and realized she was dead, he had to deal with the grief that that would never happen. And he spent the rest of his life trying to honor many people, but especially his wife. Yeah, amazing, amazing hero of mine. But that takes a special mindset, Jonathan. Exactly. To be able to look at a member of the Gestapo, or indeed to look at a capo who would be someone who is one of your own but going against you and try to figure it out and still remain balanced is, well, God forbid anyone should have to go through any of that. I don't know the early story of his childhood or what influenced him, but Nelson Mandela attributes the relationship with his grandmother and his grandfather, who were tribal leaders, teaching him that no matter what happens, you find learning in it. And he used that during those 27 years in prison to overcome the grief and the pain and to come out saying, let bygones be bygones without resentment or bitterness to go on and say, let's move forward. Ritual is so incredibly important. Many years ago, I was privileged to be a member of Jewish Burial Society here in the UK. And I would watch at the funerals different people's reactions and responses. And I always knew, because I learned that as the coffin was lowered, it was at that point that people broke. And I saw so many strange things in terms of how people respond. The different ways that families responded were kind of learnt from watching their own families in terms of this is the right way to do it, because there isn't a right way to do it. There is no right way, but there is the family way, the culture way, positive rituals. Now, it can be negative rituals. I always say to people, one of the most important things to do is go to a funeral. Leaders have to be able to go to a funeral. They have to be able to understand that there is an end to everything. And many people say, I don't like funerals. I don't want to go to funerals. It, it, I don't want to remember the pain of life. That's a mistake. We have to be able to accept the painful side of life. It's not the funeral itself. It's the fact that it's part of a ritual that is meaningful. I think in the UK, Prime Minister invited people to bring pots and pans and whatever into the street for the man who was 100 years old who died. Captain Moore. Yeah. 
this was a ritual of bringing people out and being able to say, here's a man who made a significant difference. Captain Tom Moore, you make me want to cry. The hearts of the nation fluttering. Keep walking. You've dug deep and inspired many people. That's it. Well done. Everyone is being inspired by his determination. He's a one-man fundraising machine, and God knows what the final total will be. You've brought a smile to the whole nation at a very difficult time. Captain Tom, you are a true hero. And I can't think of anybody who sums up the pride of Britain more than you. I salute you, Captain Tom. I salute you, Captain Tom. And I salute you. I salute you, sir. You are a huge inspiration, and I salute you. Captain Tom. We salute you, Captain Tom. We all salute you. Joe Biden, before the inauguration, paid attention to the 400,000 people who died. And he used a very powerful sentence, Jonathan. We have to remember to heal. And see, that's what a funeral, that's what a ritual, it helps us remember what that person meant to us. You have to be able to honor someone who dies, not be a victim for the rest of your life. That was actually what happened when I lost my son. I lost a son in 1992. I'm sorry. Yeah. To heal, we must remember. It's hard sometimes to remember, but that's how we heal. It's important to do that as a nation. That's why we're here today. Between sundown and dusk, let us shine the lights in the darkness along the sacred pool of reflection. Remember all when we lost. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the most important message she gave me was honor the person who dies by using the rest of your life to honor them, not to be a victim or blame God or blame life. There are many people who cannot do that in organizations. For example, the CEO of Swisscom, who was going into all levels of effectiveness and success and entrepreneurs, entrepreneur. He gets a new board chairman. He's going through a personal loss with the divorce and the loss becomes so powerful, the grief so powerful that after four months of basically whenever he was upset riding his bicycle up a, a mountain, he was a mountain biker, he took a rope and killed himself. Oh my God. Couldn't face the loss. He couldn't cry. He couldn't put words to his pain. He was totally isolated. And six months later, the CFO of Zurich Financial took a rope and killed himself over not a family loss, but the loss of something that happened in getting a new boss who put him into a cage. And then his CEO takes a rope and kills himself after two years, feeling guilty that he didn't protect his CFO. So you see, grief can be hidden, and people don't know how to put words to that pain. And men are more vulnerable to that than women. Uh, we don't know how a loss will impact each individual in a different way. And it depends what, what they find that they have lost in that and the meaning they attribute to it. We know retirement for many people is a freedom. For many people, it's a loss that 18 months before and after, they end up dying or having a physical uh, uh, disability. 
So it it all depends. I've seen people grieve over a, a project that is shut down that they worked for three years to make it successful, and a decision was made to shut that project down, and they go into a major grief reaction. Really, I live in Basel, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies here. And very often, they'll work on a molecule for a long time, and then suddenly they decide to shut it down. So. Does it get connected to your identity? Is it part of what you find as losing meaning and purpose? It's in each individual's experience or mind. But what we know is important is that what they have learned as children and what they have learned throughout their life about how we deal with loss and failure. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. How do we bounce back? Underneath the brokenness, underneath the pain, underneath all the tragedy, we may never be the same. But as I look around this broken place, I see there is hope here. Another thing about COVID loss affects how governments and organizations alike place so much emphasis on mission and vision statements from the point of view of dreams and hopes. And that comes to the idea of governments and leaders giving us hope. Here is new hope. Here is a new vaccine. Here is a new project. Here is a new product. Here is a new approach. This thing about giving hope and then changing the rules, because to be fair to them, you know, they're learning as they go along. You build people up with here's some hope and then you take it away again, not because you want to, but because it happens. Uh, Is is this a, a danger? It's a very big danger, but it can be solved by truthfulness. You see, if something doesn't work out, an expectation, to be able to say, here's the reason why, here is what happens. Now, what happens in politics and also happens in organization is there's a very, very positive and dangerous part called power. When your focus is on getting power, being powerful, Mm -hmm. building your ego, then it becomes dangerous. If you're there to serve, if you're there to communicate the truth, And we live in a world now that because of social media, the loss of trust is dramatic, dramatic, Jonathan. I think you you know this. Mm. Who do we trust? And the research shows that there are people who have totally lost trust in politicians, in governments. Mm. They've lost trust in business leaders. Eighty percent of people in the U.S. say they don't trust their boss. In our discussions, you were saying that in terms of loss, it's not such a bad thing for a leader to cry, to allow others to see them cry. Come on, George. <laughs> they, uh, uh, we do we do like expostulating you admit. let's be really honest about this you know in many cases one of the f- first things a ceo may do or consider doing is getting rid of staff that basically makes it more cost effective to run the business so there you are saying that and then on the other hand you're saying oh but they should be seen to be crying really uh. you're right an organization has to be able to survive by getting a result 
But the key is not to make the result more important than people. It's being able to handle both. Of course, an organization may have to downsize. They may have to deliver pain in an honest way. But what we really know a good leader does is be emotionally available. And being emotionally available means that you have empathy. You have compassion. Sometimes that's going to move the person to tears, not artificially or not crocodile tears, but to be able to say, I feel your pain and I'm touched by it, or I feel my own pain. Especially with grief, we know a key factor is to be able to put words to the pain. If you cannot put words to the pain, you are in trouble. This is why men have harder times in grieving than women. Secondly, be able to have tears. And to have tears means you have to feel the bond. You have to be able to feel what this loss meant to you. You have to be able to understand, are you angry? Are you sad? Or are you scared? And can you eventually come back to that feeling that I have lost something important? Let time be able to change your perception and find meaning and purpose in that loss. I was speaking recently about Zoom to one of the CEOs of one of the world's most respected, George, organizations. He genuinely feels a loss in terms of the company vibe that's been taken away through software like Zoom. When you see those pictures of people you're talking to, your brain is working twice as hard to figure out what that facial expression means. When you are there in person, you see it immediately. In that nanosecond in between, the bonding is disrupted. So that's why people are more exhausted after an hour of Zoom talking than a five-hour meeting in person. Another aspect of Zoom is the dashboard. The post-COVID generation of CEOs are being brought up to believe that everything must be super efficient. It's all about efficiency first through being led by algorithms and data. There are CEOs who recognize getting results isn't the only thing. Dan and Yogurt, the CEO there, has named their organization as being focused on health and that results is not the primary thing. Now, this is really shaking up the world. Many people object to that. Shareholders often object to that. But they come back to one thing, service. How are we serving our employees, our customers, and the world? And he wants to make Dan and Yogurt a service-oriented, health-oriented company that, of course, wants to make profit, but that's not going to be number one on the list. That's a powerful statement, huh? By putting people first, you're actually emphasizing profits. And that was Howard Schultz's approach in Starbucks. Starbucks was aimed to be able to create an emotional experience when you came in to feel like home, to have a cup of coffee that's a little too expensive, but you were willing to pay for that for the experience. When he left, they lost that sense of service. They become too too directed towards uh, profit. And so when Starbucks was in trouble, they invited him to, to come back. And the first thing he did was go back to the service orientation. You see, there's something in the human brain about service and helping people. And when you lose that and ego or power or something artificial gets 
blocked in the brain as an extrinsic motivator, you lose something that's important. Many organizations have implemented furloughs. However, as we're coming out of lockdown three and vaccines working and stuff like that, still people are concerned whether there's even going to be a job to go back to. It's causing serious mental health issues. Yeah, it's called anticipatory grief. It's worse than real grief. If you're fired, you can say goodbye to the job. You know that's the end. But anticipatory grief happens every day because of the uncertainty. You anticipate the loss, but it doesn't happen for delayed reasons or may never happen. So, yes, there's going to be a lot of people facing threat, danger, and uncertainty. What is the solution? A psychological safety mechanism. And that mechanism is known as a secure base. Who are your secure bases in life? Who do you turn to to give you that sense of psychological safety? We all need those secure bases. And ultimately, we have to become a secure base to ourselves. With no one to turn to in a storm, surely that can increase anxiety and exacerbate depression. People have too much anxiety. People who worry too much. By the way, that's a normal function of the brain. The brain is fundamentally negative, looking for danger and pain to survive. Once you over-activate that survival mechanism, then you lose the joy of life. You become filled with anxiety or negativity or whatever it might be. Within an organization, there should be a logical safety with your boss, with the team. And when Google studied uh, high-performing teams, they came up with one thing psychological safety. If you felt safe on a team and that team felt psychological safety, they truly outperformed every other team where there was defensiveness, where there was egos, where there was uh, people trying to prove they were right or trying to prove they were smart. Anticipatory grief is an aspect of ambiguous loss. For listeners, ambiguous loss is like endless loss. Basically, you can't grieve because you're left in limbo. For example, if someone is kidnapped and you don't know if they're dead and you don't know if they're alive, it's frozen grief, really, because you don't know what to do. Sometimes kidnapped victims are held for weeks or months or even years. That's a terrible thing for somebody to have to go through. George, it's the same thing if a loved one is suffering from dementia or something like that. They're not dead, but they are dead. Or cancer. You know they're going to die. Your loss in pain, guilt, and the sense of time itself draining away. In a hostage negotiation, the core element is about understanding grievance and loss. Can I connect? Can I make the right concession? But I've dealt many times with helping people learn to appreciate the moment, to come back and feel the joy of what is left. Now, That's hard with a kidnapping victim. But if someone has cancer or they had a heart attack or they're dying, how to enjoy every moment rather than see every moment as a loss? That's a special way of working with the mindset because for most people, they count the minutes they're losing. But you have to count the minutes that you have. So true. So true. Going back to the world of business, can you talk a little bit about Lehman Brothers and the 2008 collapse? Massive grief. They were just ordered 
to take their things in a box and walk out. You saw people crying. You saw the anger. You saw the resentment, the feeling of betrayal, the feeling of powerlessness, that somehow they knew something was wrong, but they felt no power in being able to handle that. So they were psychological hostages to the seat and the greed of certain leaders who handled it very, very ineffectively and destroyed the whole organization, which was at one time a a meaningful organization that people were very dedicated to, and it destroyed many people. It's also about the brain resolving stuff, reconstruction and reconsolidation, isn't it? Yes. This is where something called neuroplasticity comes in. Do you want to talk to us about that? It's the whole idea that you create new neurons through curiosity, learning, and exploration. Now, the opposite can happen when you are victimized, when you feel negative and stay negative, when you are depressed, when you are unhappy. You're destroying neurons. So we know that brain reconstruction, also known as brain rewiring, is possible. You can reconstruct any memory. Edith Edgar, who spent torturous years, almost died. Her parents were killed in Auschwitz. She had to reconstruct her memory, not to think about the pain, remember the pain, but not to focus on the pain and focus on what she learned. And so that is the kind of reconstruction of the brain. I worked with an executive who lost a child. She was hit by a bus right in front of his house as he was working in the garden. He ran to try to help her, and she died in his arms. 20 years later, after a divorce, alcoholism, losing three or four jobs, a whole life of failure, hidden grief, he was able to come back and rewire his brain, say goodbye to his daughter, really say goodbye to her go through the torturous tears, pain, and anger of what happened, and to reconstruct his brain, to go back and remember the first six years and the beautiful daughter he had. I at least had her for six years, and I remember those six years, not the anger of what I have lost. That's called brain reconstruction. It is something that can happen by an individual without knowing that they're actually doing it, or it can happen through therapy or other experiences to remember something negative in a positive way. The thing about uh, reconstruction, it means recognizing what is happening to yourself. Uh, You published a fascinating list of statements in terms of different types of losses. So you talk about the loss of attachment, which is who am I connected to as one type of loss. So it's recognizing, is that the type of loss that one is grieving over? Yeah, that's one of the many types. And then there's loss of territory. So loss of territory means that I know where I'm at. I know where my home is, where where I define my role. If you're in an organization and you suddenly have your role taken away, that may be a loss of territory. Humans are basically territorial, and we have to be able to have a home and be able to change so that the territory can change. The next one on the list is loss of structure. That's about what your role is. 
you knowing what you're supposed to do. So when you have a boss who is unclear of what you need to do, or you're not sure of what your structure is, or you get a new boss who wants you to do something different, do I know what my territory is? Do I know what my role is, what my structure is, and how flexible? There's some people who are very rigid, and they need that structure very tight. Others are more open to change. Next one you mentioned is loss of identity, a sense of who am I? Extremely important. We know who we are by our history. We know who we are by the things that happened in our life, memories. But when that loss comes or when there is change, people then can lose their sense of identity. This is what we see happening around the world in many cases where the whole immigration process is is such a threat where we're losing our identity as a nation, as a people, as a race, as a religion. Identity is important. Who am I? We have to be able to change identity throughout our life. As a matter of fact, every time you learn, your identity is changing. In terms of COVID loss, the next one on your list, oh, this will resonate with a lot of people. Loss of future where exactly am I going? What is my direction? People do not naturally resist change, Jonathan. I think you and I share that idea. They grab onto their past like a kid holding onto a football. Yeah. People resist the pain of change, the fear of the unknown. They have to be able to get a direction, be able to have a vision. You talked about a vision in a company. It's very important. I was out and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. I really didn't know what to do for a few months. I felt that I had let the previous generation of entrepreneurs down, that I had dropped the baton as it was being passed to me. I was a very public failure, and I even thought about running away from the valley. But something slowly began to dawn on me. I still loved what I did. I'd been rejected, but I was still in love. And so I decided to start over. I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The heaviness of being successful was replaced by the lightness of being a beginner again, less sure about everything. It freed me to enter one of the most creative periods of my life. It was awful tasting medicine, but I guess the patient needed it. Sometimes life's going to hit you in the head with a brick. Don't lose faith. Now, Steve Jobs was not a very good leader of people, but he was an incredible secure base to Apple. He was an incredible visionary. When it came to dealing with people, he was awkward. He was mean. He was cruel. He got fired from his own company, and then he got hired again. But you see, he had one vision. I want to change how the world communicates. Wow. If he didn't have that compelling vision, uh, it wouldn't have worked. For most people, it doesn't work if they don't have empathy and compassion. He got by because he could get on that stage. He could be charismatic. He could be an entertainer. He could be inspiring. But at an individual level of of someone who reported to him, he was really, really negative. Steve Wozniak worked with him, and I know Steve quite well. And he said, Steve, I won't use the language he used. Steve was just uh, mean and vicious. If you know his history, Steve Jobs was adopted twice, not once, but twice. 
His first adoptive parents gave him up for after uh, six weeks. He got adopted again. It was terrible for his mother, who was 15. She was going through all kind of grief. But Steve never really came to terms with the grief or the loss in his life. And it was a factor in the blindness that he had because he could not really bond. And he died, according to Steve Wozniak, not knowing if he was really lovable. Interesting. And he talked about it repeatedly to his close associates and, and, to, and to Steve. And he said on his deathbed, he still was feeling doubt that anybody really loved him. Which brings me to the final two in your list. Loss of meaning, big one, and loss of control. He had to hold on to whatever control he had through Apple, I guess. Apple was his secure base. I mean, people were not his secure base. Normally, you you balance the, the attachment to goals and the attachment to people. Through people, you learn to love and be loved. Through goals, you learn to be successful. Now, you can be over-attached to goals and not be able to connect to people. Or you can be connected with people, but not really attached to goals. And so you never know that you're really successful. So we need a combination of both. A lot of people will know these stages of grief or, or variations on the theme of Paganini in terms of the stages of grief. You have written out your own kind of grief line where you go from denial to protest and anger, sadness, fear, terror, panic. What, what do you mean by fear, terror, panic? You can uh, push fear into terror and that feeling of being abandoned can drive you crazy. I mean, it, it is mechanism behind people who can't handle separation. So these it, terror is an extreme form of fear. Uh, Got it. Okay. And violence is an extreme form of anger. Often at the root is fear. And at the root of that is the loss of some meaningful attachment. And then you speak about rationalization, acceptance, finding a new attachment, forgiveness and eventually gratitude grief isn't something that you say it takes six months six years it takes what it takes you get over the grief temporarily but a trigger can bring back the grief again and then you go through it or you recover the joy again so it's a lifelong process of remembering who or what are the crucibles in your life and when the triggers come up you deal with them, and then you move on again. So in that sense, we have to be reborn or renew. You have to reconnect. If you don't find a reconnection that's meaningful, and this is the brain plasticity part, you are doing what is often called rebounding, or you don't really get through the grief. You don't know the depth of your grief until you find a new attachment. And then you go through the forgiveness of self and others and ultimately come out with gratitude. And ideally, should that attachment be loved? Whatever you find meaningful or significant. So you may start an organization and you feel love for the people you're serving. It may be an individual. Uh, it depends on where you're at in your own life journey. Which brings me to my final question to you for today, George. Should grief be taught to leaders and should it be taught to children? Absolutely. To be taught about resilience and losing things. I am also of the strong belief that fairly early in life, probably after the age of five or six, children should be 
able to go to a funeral with their parents. I was very lucky. I grew up on a farm. So from the time you're a small child, you see life and you see death. From an early age, we had to be able to understand all things do come to an end at some point and to be able to accept that end. Many people have never experienced that process that happens in the agricultural life, the farm life, or in, a, in, in, in any system where you see the end is there and be able to recognize it. The truth is, we don't get out of this life alone. We lose and it will come to an end at some point. How do we deal with that separation and that end? The article for McKinsey and Company is called The Hidden Pals of Unresolved Grief, co-published with, I can't pronounce this man's surname. How, how do I say Charles's surname? <laughs> Charles Digit. I, I would suggest people that they find McKinsey and, uh, and Company The Hidden Pals of Unresolved Grief. Yeah. It's really challenging, uh, thought-provoking, brilliantly written. Can I say two other sources? Oh, yeah, please do. My first book, Hostage at the Table, has yeah. a whole chapter in there on grief because to understand hostage negotiation, they're always grieving, and the hostage negotiator has to be able to understand that. And then the second book is Care to Dare, how to understand what caring and daring is about and how underneath that is also dealing with grief. So there's chapters in each of those books, as well as my website. I'm telling you, everyone out there on the Fort Leaders uh, our audiences, I'm going to do my best to ensure that we have not heard the last of George. I'm going to beg and plead with him to come back at some point when we're going to talk about nothing but hostage taking, because I think that's going to be a fascinating episode. But until then, George, look after yourself. Okay, thank you. It's been a real, real pleasure. And stay safe and never be a hostage to anyone or even to yourself. <laughs> Brilliant. You heard it from him. Take care. God bless. Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Like you could fall and no one would hear? Well, let that lonely feeling wash away. Maybe there's a reason to believe you'll be okay. Cause when you don't feel strong enough to stand, you can reach, reach out your hand. Thought and Leaders is a goodbye production. If you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or want to chat about the show, you can either email reinventatme.com, that's reinventatme.com, or why not visit us at www.thoughtandleaders.com, that's thoughtandleaders.com. So let the sun come streaming in, cause you'll reach up and you'll rise again, lift your head and...